la buhardilla del poeta es Word, la pesadilla del poeta es Word, el paraíso del poeta es Word, el compromiso del poeta es Word, Word. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Cosmic strange. So, so on and so forth. So here we are again for another session of Baffling Combustions. And my name is Sam Truett. I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew McCarran. And so we're continuing to investigate the nature of the oath. And I'd be happy to just let down the gate and whoever wants to climb aboard and say and make a, an oath, make a marvel of the oath. Bring to bear our oaths and our, you know, oaths. Remembering oaths. its cognate, you know, remembering its association with swearing. I mean, just for the record, I'm kind of anti-oath. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Mm. Or I have a very faceted sense now of kind of the oathiness of um my life and i'm not sure that's the best part what is the oathiness of your life well i mean i think that there is an implicit oath that we take to things and that that aspect of the use of speech or non-speech a form of speech that is a non-speech in that mm. implicit oath i find a little disturbing mm -hmm. you know i would again say you know that an oath is a form of of speech and you know i would even say that words themselves this that the act of speech has a an aspect of oath of oath and witness mm -hmm. to the extent that the reason why language holds together is that there's an implicit oath that we're telling the truth or that we're on the level um, and then also that we're using the words to mean the same thing every time like if i say to you uh there's some beautiful trees outside my window. And you say, yeah. And I say, well, of course, by trees, I mean woodchucks. That's that's the word I use for woodchucks is tree. Then uh, then I've broken what you might call an oath, a kind of uh, mm. agreement that we've made about language, that, that we're all going to use words consistently in the same word way all the time. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating point. Because implicitly in language, um, there's an irony. Hmm. 
because we know that when we say tree, it doesn't have anything to do with the actual tree. We're just using something in place of the tree. A sign. And there's an irony in that there's an implicit wink. That mm -hmm. is, there's, yeah, this is, um, I believe, derived from uh, Nietzsche talks about this. Hmm. I was thinking of Wittgenstein. Seemed to me yeah, that Wittgenstein, like Wittgenstein, like his main concern was like, when you say to someone, please pass the salt, why is it that they always pass the salt? He because, couldn't figure that out. Not because of the word, but because of the language game, right? Mm. Yeah, of, that's, of this that's agreement that we all make. We all took an oath. We're going to use the language the same way. Yeah, that's less necessarily complementary to that. Um, you know, family of concerns. I think it was Paul Deman, when he was at Cornell, wrote an interesting essay around Nietzsche's sense of the wink. Mm. Yeah. But that, I think, is what bothers me. Uh, it both, um, I think it, it bothers me, and yet at the same time, I, I sort of adore the fundam fundamentalism of the sense of speech as being a form of oath and witness or listener, um, recorder. You also have an idiosyncratic way of speaking your own poetics that diverges, I would say. That's mm. one, that's something that I noticed about you many years ago when we first met. That right. you had what seemed to be inorganic, natural, didn't feel contrived different relationship to language that was inventive uh, that he's inventive, always inventing yeah, new yeah. new ways of saying things yeah yes well you know back in the day i used to yes. do the extemporaneous speech or you know sudden diction or um you know of speaking speaking poetry um that you know with some surprise, you know, turn out to really cohere. Mm. Um, you know, well, that in their written form, they hold together. I mean, it's uh, so I think that, you know, that for me was a significant event in my relationship to speech and to my thesis that um, human beings through speech, you know, are, that that is one of the avenues to all of us being poets and yeah, to, okay. you know, the nature of song. Hmm. Yeah, my wife and I went through a period when we were first together where we attempted to speak in poetry in our daily life. Like an iambic pentameter? Not iambic pentameter, but... We, in the, uh -huh. to make wonderfully beautiful phrases you know would you like some inveterate slice of orange <laughs> my little calico bunny <laughs> i forget how we did it and it was something like that yeah, it's interesting. Those metaphors are interesting because poetry is one of the areas in which language and speech tells the truth by telling uh, lies. 
Yeah, or at least by going the long way around, mm-hmm. making the uh, the circumventing the rational. Maybe I don't think we've exhausted this fascinating topic, but I was just going to say that my squeamishness is less linguistic with oath and more political in that I have noticed that um, the word oath seems to be associated with um, the right wing Hmm. in America, like the oath keepers, for example, this um, right wing pro Trump pro insurrection Hmm organization that claims to be defending the uh, United States Constitution and fighting against mm. tyranny and uh, resisting mm. the uh, foreign and domestic coup that took place through voter fraud. And this this group um, has gotten a lot of press. I, I don't think it's a small group. It, it claims to have thousands and thousands of members. Made, yeah, main people behind January 6th, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I can't think of a left-wing oath keeper. And in fact, generally, like we were saying last time, you swear an oath typically in uh, allegiance to the state when you uh, are on jury duty, when you testify in front of a jury, when you take public office. When you become a citizen. Yeah, the oath tends to support the established order. Although, yeah, you know, yeah, it's, funny it's a judicial, it's a judicial instrument. Although yeah. I was, I was thinking of this story today that I was going to tell you about this guy I met while I was hitchhiking in Wales. He picked me up in Wales and he told me his life story, which was that as a youth, he had sworn a blood oath. I'm just assuming I remember this correctly. He'd sworn a blood oath to fight for Scottish independence. And he ended up joining the British Army and uh, and occupying Northern Ireland, being one of the troops that occupied Northern Ireland, doing exa- essentially the exact opposite of what he had sworn to do. And I remember the look on his face. I don't know if I pointed it out or he pointed it out. The look of sort of chagrin that he had, had violated his oath. So there's a case of a what I would call a left-wing oath. I think Scottish independence is, at least it's against the established order. There are oaths against, there are revolutionary oaths, but you don't hear about them much. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing goes back to what we talked about, or I mentioned last time, which is this Germanic, heroic, um, I called it ethic, which is how we used to talk about it um, back in the day in, at Trinity College um, in Ireland. And um, actually, it's sort of more Germanic, heroic legend. And um, that idea of glory, loyalty, heroism, mm. and fealty to the Lord, you know, to your keeper, um, to your not king, but you know your chief, was part of a a system. I think of kind of oppression, really. You know, this idea of um, having kings and leaders and stuff. I find you know troubling mm-hmm. in itself as a human path. But 
it was a sort of way of keeping control of vassals and kings. And it was all like poeticized, you know, into these beautiful works that yeah. tended to justify that system, which I believe is continuous to the present day and is manifest in these, um, what are called militias. Mm. And also yeah. I was thinking and about it also, the... And it also is in the scouting, uh, in, the, in the scouts oath. Exactly what I was going to say. Ah, yeah. Yeah, today I was trying to remember the Boy Scouts oath, and I didn't want to look it up. Like, I like to pretend sometimes that there's no internet. And this is my memory of it, because I almost joined the Boy Scouts. I think maybe I mentioned that last time. On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country. It's not my God and my country. I think it's God and my country. I think that's basically it, but I think I left out some parts. But I remember this part where, with the repetition of to do my best, to do my duty, which is kind of a strange locution. And the Boy Scouts, I looked it up, founded in 1907, I believe by a veteran of the Boer War. And... Uh, inspired millions is founded in england then later i think two years later the u.s version was founded and inspired millions of young men to go off and die in this horrible fratricidal war of world war one because they they'd sworn this oath to do their duty to god and their country and it was pretty clear that uh, that required them to go out off and die in uh, some battlefield in belgium huh yeah, it was a sort of feed feeder system into the monster of war. Yeah, like a junior, like a militia almost, kind of. Yeah, I also looked up something on the Boy Scouts, and I have the 1908 text that hmm. is the oath that uh, was sworn at its, I guess, a year after its founding. Do would you like me to read it? Yeah. yeah. All right. So before a boy becomes a scout, he must take the oath, which is this. On my honor, I promise that I will do my duty to God and the king. I will <laughs> do my best to help others, whatever it costs me. I know the scout law and will obey it. Now, <laughs> so there's that. That's the oath, Sparrow, that yeah. you know, came with the That's the English version. I have a feeling the yeah. American version is not so much uh, monarchical. You don't yeah, the king would the get king. left out. But that also underscores this continuity between, say, the nature of warrior society as depicted in Hararat, you know, in Beowulf. And, um, you know, the Boy Scout pavilion at <laughs> Mount Athos, um, you know, in West Virginia, is similarly like that same kind of structure. Mm. And there's a monster outside. And do you want to, can I add one more thing? Yes. Okay, so I, I'm reading this from Wikipedia. 
while taking this oath, the scout will stand holding his right hand raised level with his shoulder, palm to the front, thumb resting on the nail of the little finger. <laughs> so can you guys do that? I can't even picture that. I, I'm having a hard I'm, time imagining as well. You have to start using, uh, yeah, you have to get your hand in it. And what the is other it again? three, uh, okay, I'll go over. And the other three fingers upright, pointing up upwards. This mm -hmm. is the scout's salute and secret sign. So it's a secret sign. Yeah. I never see anybody Name giving that secret sign. I guess because it's secret. It I looks can it's it the out. W. Well, the W is all enclosed. It's all closed up. Like, I think the three fingers are 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 stuck together. I don't think you open them like a W. Oh, ah, so does Scott. I get it. Yeah, that looks familiar. <laughs> I was just thinking. Uh, so a creed, a creed is different than an oath. Does an oath have a a connotation of of action, some sort of action mm. of doing, whereas creed is more of a statement of belief. A creed, like in in a Christian uh, church, right? the Apostles' Creed. Um, From where, credo, I believe. I believe, yeah. So that would make yeah. sense. But an oath, it does have an agentic mm -hmm. quality to it, wouldn't you say? You're, you're an oath to do I, something or to be to be in the world in a certain way, like the promise keepers, for example the evangelical tradition in the 90s i think it was the 90s that was a movement for men oh yeah a, a new form of yeah, male masculinity. As we discussed, i mean with oath there's a futurity there's a futurity yeah, yeah i agree creed, I, I, every oath i can think of the present is there an old english word rid like a r-e-d-e -E. oh maybe it's middle english sam you're an expert I in middle and old English, where you I know you have a degree in old English. Rid, <laughs> like the Wiccan rid. It's like um it, you know, it's it's a neo-pagan document. Maybe it was written at some point in the mid-70s, but it has this um archaic association. And it's um some uh oath of sorts that Wiccans take. Oh yeah. It's referred to as the Wiccan. R-E-D-E, -E. and I think the pronunciation is rid. Yeah, it sounds super familiar. It does? Yeah. I'm trying to look it up some, in my uh, dictionary's appendix. I mean, it sounds of, a bit like writ, like W-R-I-T, but... Yeah. And it's short. That's There's a long version it. and a short version. Um... But the short version is, and it harm none, do what thou wilt. And it harm none, do as thou wilt. That it harm none, so, <laughs> this makes no sun, sense. That it harm none, do as thou wilt. Now, I'm sorry, these are different versions of the same thing. Let, oh. me, look, let me look it up. This um, is a famous yeah, uh, I think line of uh, Aleister Crowley, I think. Here it is. 
Yeah, I think writ is um, is something like advice or counsel. Oh, counsel. Uh, it's like advice. Hmm. Here it is. So uh, it's not a... Bid the wicked laws. We must in perfect love and perfect trust. Live and let live. Fairly take and fairly give. Cast the circle thrice about to keep the evil spirits out. To bind the spell every time, let the spell be spake and rhyme. Soft mm-hmm. of eye and light of touch, speak little, listen much. Do you also go by the waxing moon, chanting out the witch's rune? Windern shines go by the waning moon, chanting out the baneful rune. When the lady's moon is new, kiss the hand to her times two. When the moon rides at her peak, then your heart's desires seek. Heed the north wind's mighty gale, lock the door and drop the sail. When the wind comes from the south, love will kiss thee on the mouth. When the wind blows from the west, departed souls will have no rest. When Mm -hmm. the wind blows from the east, expect the new and set the feast. Nine woods in the cauldron go, burn them fast and burn them slow. Elder be the lady's tree, burn it not or cursed you'll be. When the wheel begins to turn, let the Beltane fires burn. When the wheel has turned to Yule, light the log and the horned one rules. Heed ye flower <laughs> bush and tree by the lady blessed be. Where the rippling waters go, cast a stone and truth you'll know. When ye have a true need, hearken not to others' greed. With a fool no season spend, lest ye be counted as his friend. Merry meet and merry part, bright the cheeks and warm the heart. Mind the threefold law you should, three times bad and three times good. When misfortune is ye now, wear the blue star on thy brow. True in love ever be, lest thy lovers false to thee. Eight words the wicked rule fulfill, and ye harm none, do what ye will. Mm. From, from 1974. Ah. That's the reed, the red, the red, whatever the you call it. Yeah, the wicked red, which is an oath of sorts. I mean, it's a moral prescription, moral counsel. Reminds me of the book of Proverbs. Yeah, it's, a, it's a way of life. Mm. I was just thinking I'm of a left, a left it, wing, quote unquote, oath. Ah. Good point. I yeah. love, I, I really felt it um, talking about the moon mm. and of reordering one's astronomical orientation, sort of a, a little bit away from the sun and toward the moon. For sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and toward the, you know, integrating with the cycles of the moon, and, uh, yeah. That is the difference between paganism and and monotheism in a nutshell, I think. Mm -hmm. The moon, rather than the sun, the sun is a kind of monotheist being, and the moon, which is constantly changing and sometimes disappearing, has kind of a... uh, multiple personality disorder <laughs> so mm-hmm. it, it's almost a polytheistic creature the moon mm-hmm. what's the difference between well a, a vow and an oath yeah it's funny one of my notes today was like of all those words my favorite is vow i just like the word i like that it has three letters i like the sound of it 
It just seems mm. a little less solemn. A vow it is also, like a, a wedding vow, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to genderize or anything, but I think vow feels more feminine for me. Mm, yeah. And you get married. This is something kind of feminine about a marriage, a wedding. Yeah. I was I thinking think about that. Do have like a sacred dimension, I think, more, but you know. Mm. More than a oath. Yeah. There's something coarse about an oath, you know, and again, you know, it's association with swearing, which, by the way, swear, um, you know, in its proto-Indo-European cognate means something like to speak, to say, to tell. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I was thinking of that Bob Dylan song where he says, uh, equality, I spoke the word as if a wedding vow. Uh, but I was so much older then. I'm younger than that now. My back pages. Yeah. Good song. It's a good song and uh, and an interesting use of the word vow, really to kind of revoke the vow, the way you get divorced and you revoke your wedding vows. Oh, I think you break them. You break them? Well, I guess you break you- them when you... When you cheat on your wife, but I don't know. I think when you divorce, I don't know if you quit. I would say revoke, but I'm not sure. I guess there uh-huh. is no official, what's the word? Uh, you know, word for what you do with your wedding vows once you're divorced. What would your Scottish soldier say? <laughs> I think he would say you, you grow older and you change. And yet some but part he- of you still stays true to your to your vows. I sometimes think that about divorced people that in some ways they're still married to the people they're divorced from. It's it's not something you can just break a marriage. Legally you can, but emotionally I, I'm not I mean I wasn't married before, but I would just my guess is it's something you don't quite sever entirely. I sort of agree with that. But I, I am no doubt influenced by Catholic un- understanding of marriage, which is a permanent state. Oh yeah. <laughs> from my um, divine perspective, regardless of what you end up doing with uh, divorce or remarriage. Yeah, I met this guy when I was in Mexico City, like two months ago, and he was a young questing. Uh, searching guy, and he's reading all the uh, uh, holy books at once, or at least he's reading the Bhagavad Gita and the Quran. But he's also attending services at the Orthodox Christian Church. And he was saying to me that uh, he's drawn to Christianity, not to Islam, because in Islam, it's very easy to get divorced. I guess it says in the Quran, you just say to your wife, I divorced thee, I divorced thee, I divorced thee, or something like that. And then you're divorced. And he, like uh, the Catholics, has a feeling that marriage is forever. Or at the very least, that it should be hard to undo. Mm. Like you have to get it annulled. In the right. Catholic, it has to be annulled by the church, some church official, I guess, to be official. 
But that seems really hypocritical to me. I mean, I hate. To, I don't like to attack the Catholic Church. Oh, come on! Like there's, the there's, plen- there's plenty to attack, though. It's a, it's a, I mean, you know. annulment though seems very political, and basically, if you're well connected and rich, you, you'll get it annulled. Completely. And if you're a poor slob, you burn just in hell. Suffer. The, <laughs> you either stay married to this person that beats you, or you just get divorced and never remarry because you are forbidden by the dopey church. Or you get divorced, remarry, and you never take the Eucharist again. Right. You which, uh, which which I, I've known multiple people of a certain generation hmm. for whom that has been the uh, fate. But is that really uh, theologically correct? I mean, can't you just go and what's the word, uh, you know, confess to your confessor and then get a, a pardon and then you're allowed to take communion I think, again. I think in the post-Vatican II world, yes. People mm. who came were formed earlier, not so much. You know, it's old habits die hard. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I think that one thing I'd like to point out is yes. that underscoring all of these the plights of the oath is a is a structural problem mm. in that um, is the one that takes the oath the one that holds it mm. in other words the person who who makes the promise which is what we're talking about isn't necessarily going to be the one that's going to be able to hold it because of the fluidity of ourselves and that we have multiple faces mm. that we're not consistent and and legally when you when you swear something under oath and then later you're tried for perjury it's not you that tries yourself. You don't like go to the police station and say, well, you know, I I made a mistake. I made this oath and then I violated it. Please send me to prison. It's someone else. If I understand you, what you're saying, Sam, it's like you make the oath and someone else enforces it. In fact, the, the state generally, maybe in some cases a religion enforces it. So you, I, I think you're that's... kind of, there's, you're this sort of helpless figure in a way, sometimes an uh, innocent victim, perhaps, that, that uh-huh. you swore an oath, hoping for the best, attending to tell the truth, and then you slipped up, and now you have to go to prison for perjury. <laughs> mm-hmm. Totally. I mean, there's the whole system of structural violence, you know, that's behind different systems of uh, oaths. But what I meant was more just the per, um, that we're different people at different times, and that you know the person who takes an oath might not be the you know the person who's going to hold it. That you know taking an oath is very different experience in our lives than being able to keep an oath. But I think. Um... It's the question is what is the, how important how exactly do you keep an oath? Let's say let's think of the Boy Scout oath. 
you've, you've made this oath that you're going to serve the king and God and help everyone the best you can. So you're going to make mistakes. Everyone is. Does that mean that your oath is invalid? I don't think so. I think the oath is a kind of intention that you mm. live towards and you accept your, your failings as part of it. It's like my guru talks about the importance of having a goal. He says something like the lotus flower lives in the muck. I guess lotuses like literally live in like muddy yeah. places. And yet she always keeps her eyes on the moon. She always keeps her focus. I guess maybe lotuses actually literally look up at the moon. And so everyone needs a goal, a purpose, a desideratum is the word that my guru likes to use. Um, you know, some sort of ultimate purpose in life. And you move towards that. You fail, you, you have shortcomings, you, have, you backslide, but you have an intention, a purpose. Better that than no purpose. I mean, that's how I understand an oath. That's what, not uh, that it's not that you can keep it 100% all the time. Of course you can't. If you yeah. could, like, you don't make an oath to breathe. You don't mm -hmm. make an oath to eat lunch, you know, because mm -hmm. you don't have to. These are things you just do. Oaths are things that are somewhat mm -hmm. difficult and somewhat aspirational, as we say nowadays. That's how the uh, theologian Paul Tillich differentiates the human species from other species is by the, uh, the experience of what he calls what he calls um, ultimate concern, that, that human beings um, generate these ultimate concerns that they then um, pursue uh, as, as life-defining goals or orientations. And I guess they are kind of oath. And he's in yeah, favor I, of that. And, uh, oh, yeah, he thinks it's necessary that uh, if, if, you if you don't have that, yeah. or if your ultimate concern is completely finite, um, that it will lead to most likely existential disillusionment. Huh. That some sort of spiritual ruin, malaise, that we need to have an ultimate concern beyond beyond the material, beyond the finite, some orientation. I wrote about this in, in, in a book called The Dynamics of Faith that was published, I believe, in the later 1960s, maybe around 1967 or 1968. I'm not really doing it justice, but um, hmm. I, I really appreciate this softer sense of oath. Um, and I also really appreciate, Sparrow, your sense of, you know, that the failure of an oath is is sort of just part of what happens. And uh, and I, I really like your soft attitude about it. But in a way, I was also sort of wanted to lead into the fact, Sparrow, that, you know, you introduced this idea of oath in part related to your own practice. Yeah. That you have a lot of uh, vows and patterns that you uh, meet, you know, aspirations that you've built into your life. Yeah, I was thinking just before our podcast, that was where my cogitation was moving towards uh, these very specific vows, oaths—I don't know—I don't, I don't, I don't have a word for them. I would maybe call them practices or rituals that I try to do every day. For example, I read French 
every day, usually while I'm brushing my teeth at night. And I have several books that I read. One is a Tintin comic, Tintin, as we say in French. Um, one is, at the moment, I'm reading uh, Flaubert's Three Tales, Trois Contes. And I'm reading this weird novel that my friend Janet gave me called Abraham in Brooklyn. Um, so I have like a few books that I'm reading. And then I have different books at my dad's house when I'm down in Brooklyn. I'm reading Balzac, uh, Le Peau de Chagrin, the novel. So, uh, and I'm reading Junkie by uh, William Burroughs in French. Oh, and also uh, Harry Potter. So it's, you know, I do it for maybe as little as six minutes a day, maybe 10 minutes at the most. But it's something I try to do without fail every day, always read French. Another thing is I try to do every day, well, that's only when I'm here in my uh, house, is to listen to a record. I have a record on the record player, and I'll listen, again, just for a minute or two, to a record. And somehow, at the end of two months, you know, I have heard the whole record and I and kind of understood it because I listened to it very slowly. Um, right now I'm listening to a record called Liverpool Scene, I think it's called. It's a bunch of Liverpudlian poets in 1970. They're sort of like the uh, Liverpool equivalent of the Fugs. They're a bunch of poets that, that make uh, music. Um, oh, really cool. The thing yeah. is, Sparrow, how would you say this relates to sort of the the family of concerns around oath or vow or, you know, maybe even, you know, uh, pledges or declarations? How, how would you say these streams of activity that you're engaged in are, uh, are part of a commitment like of that nature? I mean, Just it to seems state. to me of some form of self-improvement. I'm very interested in this idea of incremental progress. What was my big breakthrough? I don't know if I've discussed this in these podcasts with reading French. At first, I got this idea. A friend of mine, uh, my friend Rachel, her father had a bunch of books in French. And I was reading this one on orfèvrerie, on gold working, on how to like literally work with gold to make jewelry. And I would read it every day and I would always get lost where I was. I didn't remember exactly where I was. And then I realized I need a pencil. I need to mark exactly where I'm up to. So the next book I started reading, I would use a pencil so I would know exactly where I was. So this idea of just reading one paragraph a day, incrementally, incrementally, you can read a really difficult book, a book that uh, one of the first books I read was by... Pascal, Pascal, uh, Essays Civil and Moral, was it Pascal? No, it was that guy that people think was Shakespeare. Bacon, I think it was Francis Bacon. Bacon. Yeah, I think it was Francis Bacon. And um, anyway, you know, it's a book that's really difficult to read, but if you just read it a little bit at a time, you know, within four years, you finish it, if you have a pencil. So I don't know what it is. I'm not sure. I mean, I would, if I had to call it something, I would call it a vow, just because I like the word vow. Maybe, maybe it's more of a pledge. It's more of an action than than it. It has nothing to do with belief. It's not a credo or a uh, creed. It's a it's a practice. And also, I make art every night. Come to think of it, 
I, I make, uh, I work on my drawings and I make these other little uh, sort of one piece uh, collages. And also little books like art, uh, artist books with writing in them. So I have all these, you know, generative practices that are, it's sort of an art practice. It's, a, it, for me, it's very Taoist. It's kind of, how do you make something without any effort? The effort is remembering to do it every day, but the actual process is very easy. I'm interested in the easy path. <laughs> I like the notion of incremental change. Uh -huh. It, um, I, I know I, I'm, I feel at times, I don't know if it's a Christian thing, this transfiguration, but th this belief in instantaneous change, quantum right. change that's um, inspired by, triggered by a moment of grace, a fierce grace where there's some, yeah, there's some quantum change to the self or to the spirit. William James writes about it in the varieties of religious experience in his famous chapter on conversion. He what does he call it? He calls well, he, it transfiguration. He, he recognizes two uh, two forms of it that emerge in the uh, testimonials that he uh, studies or had studied, and they are the instantaneous type, which is the type that I just described, and then the type by self surrender. Hmm which is, uh, I, I guess, a little bit more incremental, analogous maybe to what someone goes through when they do a 12-step program. Ah, yeah. Where there's uh, an intentionality, um, some sort of process. It's not like Flannery O'Connor's Fierce Grace. Hmm. You know, that, that life-upending um pervasive sort of change the transfigurative change mm -hmm. yeah i'm not sure is it i mean i believe in instant presence hmm. so i think that's a credo but that's not really a credo that's sort of a experience or just beyond words hmm. and i think it's not change there's nothing to change it's just revealing Mm -hmm. what's there there's nothing it's, to do in a sense it's the opposite of change it's sort of coming back to your original state you might say mm -hmm. maybe it's a problem that we don't have more vows and oaths <laughs> now i'm thinking that there's something there's something positive about it if it's directed toward the right thing well, I mean, I think, yeah i believe i do think that it's a positive thing if it remains within the family of speech Hmm. You know, what do you mean? I guess. I mean, if one yes. is talking about taking oaths, that is, um, you know, making a vow. Um, yeah, I guess that as opposed to in, implicit vows and implicit oaths, that they be conscious, that they be acts of speech, hmm. if that hmm. makes sense. What's an example of an unconscious oath? Well, as we discussed last time, and I thought was sort of an interesting revelation for me in terms of information, that we in the United States have an implicit oath mm -hmm. um, that we don't take. Like somebody who 
swears becomes a U.S. citizen, swears that oath that Andrew read. Yeah. And, you know, if you're born here, we, there's an implicit oath, but I don't remember ever making it. But a lot yeah. of the, you know, what we talked about, sort of structural violence um, is buried in that implicit oath. Mm -hmm. You know, that the cops can have jurisdiction over me, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying. So if it's volitional, if it's a speech act, if it's mm -hmm. conscious, consciously rendered by someone that you feel uh, more positive about it. Uh, I, you know, I've been writing about the conception, my conception of the saint with a friend of mine. Um, and one thing, uh, saint uh, applied broadly. And one thing that I realized that I really am drawn to is people who have immoral clarity. Um, like my physician who uh, has entered into an oath with himself, I guess, I don't know, to um, spend his life trying to heal people. And, um, you know, he lost his wife when he was young fairly young at ALS. He adopted a child who he loves, but that's been um, rocky in some ways because the child had fetal alcohol syndrome. He's mm -hmm. in his 80s now. You know, he's had to sell his office and his apartment. Now he's renting a one bedroom so he can keep his practice going. Mm -hmm. But he, he he's just dedicated to, to doing this, this thing. Mm -hmm. And there's mm -hmm. a, cl a clarity there that gets him up in the morning and there's a clarity in his eyes. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do think that there's something of an oath or vow broadly defined that he's, uh, mm. you know, mm. living into. Yeah. You know, I was going to sing that song by Bob Dylan, uh, A Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall. Okay. And um, this, what you're saying is kind of reminding me of that. This is the last verse. I'm a-going back out before the rain starts a-falling. I'll walk to the depths of the deepest dark forest, where the people are many and their hands are all empty, where the pellets of poison are flooding their waters, where their home in the valley meets the damp, dirty prison. And the executioner's face is always well hidden. Where hunger is ugly, where the souls are forgotten. Where black is the color and none is the number. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it. And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it. And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking. But I'll know my song well before I start singing. And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, and it's a hard, it's a hard rain are going to fall. Nice job. Thank you, thank you. Nice, Dang. dude. It's a vow. It's a uh, oath in a way. It's an oath like your doctor is keeping. Yeah, and I know Dylan um, writes about I, this. I in, felt just in Chronicles about uh, keeping. I think he refers to it as a bargain, a bargain or an agreement to mm. to um, 
to continue as a troubadour, as a singer, songwriter, you know, um, for as long as he can, which he seems to be doing. I don't think it's just driven by economics. Yeah. And yet it's partly, you know, he gets paid for it. Handsomely. He gets, uh, you know, rumor has it he has a girl in every port. I mean, an aging woman in every port, probably. I mean, he gets uh, certain pleasures from it, let's suppose. It's not, you know, he's not killing himself for it, but he's keeping to the bargain. Unlike Francis Bacon, right, who has made some sort of, you, you mentioned him earlier, made an oath on some level to pursue... I guess, empirical science and ended up being killed by it. How? Um, he was studying frozen foods and he got <laughs> out of his carriage when it was icy weather and stuffed a chicken and ended up getting pneumonia. Wow. And, uh, dying. Yeah. Stuffed a chicken? Yeah, with ice. Oh, I see. Hmm. hmm. Yeah. He's yeah, I thought, Sarah, what you read... I thought what you read was closer to a, 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 the uh, Wiccan read, kind of oh, like yeah. it encompasses a way of life. Do you know what I mean? Interesting. Um, also a kind of poetics, but, you know, yeah, I sort of felt that commitment. Yeah. Nice. And it's a different era of Dylan. Like, uh, I think of Dylan as being this kind of, uh, anarchistic figure who a mysterious figure doesn't quite believe in anything and kind of is ironic about everything he says to reporters evasive mysterious but in this song he's very explicit this is what my life is about to mm -hmm. you know help the people in the dank dirty dirty prison <laughs> yeah like uh, the Lord Jesus going down into hell, the harrowing of hell. Yeah. Yeah. And also and way now, down in the dungeon, dark as a mine. Way down in the mine, dark as a dungeon. And the world we live in now with the war in the Ukraine and uh, these fascists killing people in you know, supermarkets, just going into a Jesus. supermarket and is mowing down black people to, can you believe it because of the replacement theory oh my to, god what what just sin on earth it's just I'm, what evil incarnate yeah just really unspeakable it's horrific yeah it's like you know more than ever we need to kind of renew that kind of faith that dylan's talking about in that song that you know that you're not afraid of the darkness of the whatever the grotesqueries around you you're not going to let them scare you off what do you say about the executioner that's a striking one the, ex the executioner's Ooh. face is always well hidden yeah great line like and i think literally yeah. true isn't it so don't executioners wear hoods or something at least they did in the old days Reminds me of Hannah Arendt's concept of the banality of evil. Uh -huh. Evil is, you know, it's not perpetrated by any one person, but by a bureaucracy. Hmm. Although I read some article, I think, in the New York Review of Books that that she was wrong, that uh, that that Eichmann, because she said that at the famously at the, you know, she was 
reporting on Eichmann's trial in Jerusalem. And Eichmann said that he was only a... Uh, Cog in the wheel. Yeah, he only followed orders. But uh, then in other places it was proven that he was a believing Nazi, that, you know, he was... He was um, lying under oath, you know, he was pretending to be someone he wasn't, a, a mere faceless bureaucrat rather than a believing Nazi. But I think in that concept, the banality of evil is about more than just Eichmann, right? Right. She might have been yeah. wrong about Eichmann, but she might have been right about evil. Yeah. <laughs> it's logical. The I darkness think. grows. The darkness grows. Woe to those who harbor darkness in their hearts. I think that's the quote from Nietzsche. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, where was that? Was that from Beyond Good and Evil? I have to think. Hold on. Or the space. You know, I'm I'm not sure. I, I I'd have to pause on that. Yeah, not sure. Hmm. The darkness does grow. We live in a time of darkness. We certainly of, do. You know, a lot of uh, confluences, um, you know, in every direction. Well, but I would point to toward a happier time, you What's guys. That? I would point to a happier time, which is the past. And uh, when <laughs> I was living in Ireland, um, you know, I had occasion to go with my girlfriend at that time, Mary Foley, to... Um, to that place that is uh, redolent in 20th century literature as the Hill of Hoth, which mm. is the place where, um, you know, of the, the end of um, the Ulysses by James Joyce, mm -hmm. which is Molly Bloom, um, you know, in which she sp speaks out yes at the very end. Yes, yes, yes. Of Ulysses, yes, yes. And she said, yeah, yes, as I recall. And so went to the Hill of Hoth, and it's beautiful there. And you can mm. see the Irish Sea, you know, rolling mm. out, and it was a beautiful day. And as I strolled uh, this kind of path, you know, along its rim, along its top there, I came up with a ballad, with a sort of refrain for a ballad that I wanted to impart because it calls to the oath. Would you like to hear it? Yeah, we'd love yeah, to hear it. You do? Okay. Oh, I made an oath on the hill of Hoth, I made an oath to thee, and by that oath I am betrothed and will never more be free. Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts, a nonprofit organization dedicated to challenging and expanding conceptions of human possibility and the home of Station Hill Press. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network, and our cover art and theme music is by Havana poet Omar Perez the author of Cubanology. We're live on Pacifica Radio Network and available on any and all, including your favorite podcast venues. If you want to be in touch, including with any questions, insights, notices of gaffes or blunders, 
suggestions for future sessions we are very open to those as we are to donations to our enterprise please write or call us at station hill press or email bc at stationhill.org and there we go Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.